Well, good morning. As, uh, as you heard just a moment ago, uh, Dave mentioned that my name is Dave Butler, and I've been uh, privileged to be a friend of his place church for a number of years through friendship with Gus Best and uh, Doug. I think I actually met them both at the same time. I don't think it was in jailhouse. I think actually we were at a lunch someplace, and uh, I have enjoyed uh, enjoyed both of them, but over the years, uh, Doug and I have enjoyed a rich friendship. In fact, I was with uh, his son and daughter-in-law uh, most of this last weekend in an event that uh, took place in the middle of the state of Washington. Uh, Doug and I have taught skiing together and actually uh, shared pulpit series together uh, some years back. Uh, it's, so it's a great privilege to be here. Uh, if you don't know me and I don't know you, I mean, I know there's a number of friends here for me, but um, my wife Kathy and I live over in Liberty Lake. I've had the opportunity to serve in church, uh, church there, and then in the recent years, I've had a couple of interim uh, stints, I guess I would be the right term, 10 years with uh, churches in the Northern Mountain District of the Free Church, uh, one in Libya and one in the major metropolis of Entiat. Do you know where Entiat is? <laughs> Some of you do. That's pretty amazing there. It's that road you go through on the way to Shalem. That's the important part there. So anyway... <laughs> I know, I'm going to get in trouble for that. I'm, unfortunately, this is recorded, isn't it? So, oh well, that's the way it goes. Well, let's pray as we're going to take a look at uh, God's Word here. And uh, I trust that this will be a time where the Holy Spirit will do great work among us. So let's uh, ask that that would take place. It is amazing, Father, that uh, you would give us that gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might understand exactly what is in your heart and what you want to communicate to us. And we know that we are often deaf. Sometimes we're just simply uh, unwilling, unyielding in our hearts. But we ask that your Holy Spirit would overcome that. And that what's shared this morning would not be the words of a mere man, nor would it even be the hearing of a mere man, but it would be a unique work of your Spirit to give understanding and insight and ultimately application so that uh, you might be seen in each one of us and glory might be shed throughout the world. So we ask this, Father, with every dependence upon you to do this through uh, the power that you actually provide through your word. So we thank you that your word doesn't return void or empty, and we uh, depend upon that in this time. We express this request in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, years ago, uh, years ago, uh, before there were personal computers, if you can imagine such a time ever existed... <laughs> Well, I was in my adolescence. We are often asked a question among the youth group of which I was a part, and the question was this. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? As you can tell, that question has stayed with me over the years, and I've had a chance to ponder it, and I think it's both a, a good and a, a bad question. I think it was a bad question in that it was asked for the purpose of creating behavior compliance. In other words, what they wanted you to do was show up on Sunday morning and Sunday evening for worship. And if you were really good, you were there on Wednesday night. Wanted to make sure that you didn't read Mad Magazine, nor smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls that do. It was all about behavior compliance in that situation. Yet on the other side, I think it's a very good question, because it asks how one is doing in their relationship with Christ. In fact, it asks this question to whether one is willing to evaluate. Uh, is there a commitment in your heart to follow after Christ? Where did that commitment come from? Are you pursuing that commitment? Has God has put it on your heart? Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 really put a, this in a, in a different way of wording, a God's way of wording. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourself. That should be just a stop right there. Test yourselves. Or, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. What's well, my understanding from a conversation that I had with Pastor Doug in the, the past week, that the theme of your study in 1 John revolves around uh, three good questions that are derived from the text of 1 John, by which, by which those who are believers in Jesus Christ can be assured that, in fact, they are of the faith, and even better, to be assured that they will have eternal life. You're not there yet, but if you might want to jot this down, 1 John 5, 12, one of the very first verses I memorize, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life is actually how the whole verse goes. And so there's a particular insurance there. And by way of encouragement, and I hope a little bit review for you, I'm going to go ahead and state uh, these questions as, uh, and I'll call them test questions. You might want to write these down if you take notes. Maybe just jot them somewhere. Um, I know some of you are looking at me now like, write down? I don't write down. I text down in my phone. And that's all right. I get that. I don't take offense on that. And if you are doing other than taking notes on the sermon in your phone, well, I'll pox upon you. But I get that these days there. Your phone, your tablet, whatever you're using. I had a, my father-in-law lives with us and had a Bible study the other night. Uh, this is about a week and a half ago. And I realized as I was explaining to him something that the scriptures said, he was pointing to the tablet that I had in my lap saying, no, you just say that. And I thought, he doesn't understand that I'm reading God's word right from my tablet. He's expecting to see a book there. And I know that's a tough challenge for us as we get older. So some of the forms of communication are out there. But truly, I'm using a tablet right now, but I, and I am reading from the text. So it's all genuine and verified. And let me go ahead and give you those questions. There are three questions that this book of 1 John asks so that you might be assured of your faith. And these questions are these. Do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you obey God's word? Do you obey God's word? And do you love the brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you love the brothers and the sisters in the faith? Uh, now these, these three questions are asked or actually applied together as you go through this book uh, three consecutive times. The passage that we're going to focus on this morning that was read just a moment ago, verses 4 to 10 in chapter 3, that's the second time these questions are applied together. And specifically, they, they focus on this, this moral question, so to speak, or this question about obedience. Do you obey God's word? Do you obey God's word? Um, that's a little bit of intimidating, isn't it, when you hear that? I mean, really, nobody likes obedience. Let's, let's be honest with us. But now we get to this question, do you obey God's word? Well, that puts us on edge a little bit there. I think these words are going to be helpful. Uh, two more bits of pieces of information, if I might give them to you before we uh, uh, jump into this. First off, as you'll see in verse 5, these words are written to battle back against a heresy or false teaching that has pro was probably doing damage to the faith of those who were reading this letter. You'll see, that, you'll see these words, you've heard or you've read this before, you've seen this, you know this, is really the, the thought there. So um, there was an in-crowd, they were false teachers, but they, they set themselves apart from the rest by saying, we, we have a certain spiritual standing you don't have, 
And actually, it gives us freedom to do things that you can't do, and it's completely, completely false. Um, it's the same in our day. We, we have some, even among high-profile, seemingly genuine Christian ministries, there's, there are those who think that they can live a certain way because they got raised to a level of, uh, of uh, notoriety or, or even popularity, and so they, they go out and they live in a manner that is contrary to the gospel. Uh, if I might throw this in, I won't even charge you extra for it, but I remember being down in the South at our conference there, and they, uh, they and you know, I'm Northwest through and through, and there was this, for those people at the conference, there was a certain parking lot that was closer to the facility that those who were among the spiritual elite could only park their cars in. What? Look, it's first come, first serve, and if your car's in my way, well, who cares about swapping paint here, you know? But it was one of those really interesting things. Like, this seems to be contradictory to what you find in the scriptures. So there's no two-tier standard of morality. That's quite foreign to the thoughts that are expressed in the Bible. Second, if you're taking notes or paying close attention, you might be tempted to whisper to the person next to you, hey, this guy's pointing at, preaching that same point all over again. We could have been out of here two hours ago. Well, maybe 15 minutes. But anyway, yeah, that is true. Verses 4 through 7 seem to parallel verses 8 to 10, and there are some similarities there, but there's also some differences, and we'll explore those. So if you're taking notes and would appreciate an outline of the passage, let me give you it here. So verses 4 to 6, I'm just going to label those, authentic believers do not practice sin. Authentic believers do not practice sin. And verse 7 is a critical warning. So verses 4 to 6, authentic believers do not practice sin. Verse 7 critical warning to remember and verses 8 to 10 authentic believers are born of God authentic believers are born of God so let's take a look at verses 4 to 6 one can determine if he or she is of God and is an authentic believer in that authentic believers do not practice sin John's intro to the section is really quite pointed sin and lawlessness are the same sin and lawlessness are the same uh, well, the Bible in both the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew text and the New Testament, the Greek text, uh, use these words interchangeably. Apparently, there were false teachers in John's day who made a distinction. And the distinction went like this. They agreed that lawlessness was wrong. In other words, they had this Jewish heritage in which they said, we must obey God's law is expressed through Moses. So if you don't do that, then, of course, you're lawless and, and that's wrong. But the idea that that lawlessness now was sin and that sin would separate them from God, they weren't willing to go there. And you can see then this was going to open up all kinds of ways by which a person could justify a sinful lifestyle. And, and actually, these people claimed that they were morally sinless, uh, there's probably some creepy Gnosticism in there. If you're not familiar with that, Gnosticism finds its roots in Greek philosophy, which the idea is everything that is immaterial is, is good, everything that is material is evil, and the idea behind that is, well, I'm, of course, material, so it doesn't matter if I sin. I can't help it anyway. And, of course, that uh, is addressed in the books of Colossians. Maybe that's where Doug will preach next. We'll see on that. I don't know if I'll motivate him there, but... It's a very powerful thought. It's actually operating in the Christian world today. But these people were perverting the idea that, that man 
is sinful, mankind is sinful by nature and by choice. And really what they're doing is they're saying, you don't know if you don't really need to have a Savior because if you just don't break the law of God, even though lawlessness is in and of itself sin, if you don't break the law, then you, you can do as you, you want to. And they did do as they wanted to. And in fact, it, it justifies all kinds of theft and deceit and adultery and idolatry. It was really, a, well, if I could just, I, I, think the, uh, uh, I think the best term on that in terms of its thinking, it's whacked. It's just a whacked way of thinking. Because if you take a look in 1 John, you see these words. 1 John 1a, you've already seen them. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. These folks did not have the truth in them. They were whacked in their thinking. Don't be whacked in your thinking. Look at verse 5 with me again, if you would. There is a great benefit in grasping the meaning of what is written here. It directs us to the right way of thinking. It's an appeal to the knowledge of those reading this letter already that they possess, they know this, and this encouragement to return to the gospel that they originally received. When you turn on the radio, when you go to a podcast, when you even watch on television, dear friends, have your word in front of you. Have the Bible in front of you so that the word can speak to you because it's very easy to be taken in by those who are glib and capable and persuasive in their communication and be taken down the wrong track. That's why I think it's even important for you right now to take a look because uh, I might say something that it's itself it's whacked. And we don't want that. We want the, the word to speak itself. And these people needed to come back to what they originally received, that they were sinful, that there was a Savior who died on the cross to pay for their sins. And that's all that they needed to understand and come back to, that they had a sin issue. And that sin issue was resolved by Jesus Christ. In fact, if we, we take a look at this, and we'll see this in just a moment, this was the purpose of Christ coming to earth, was to take away our sins. Perhaps, as John is writing these words, he echoes back to what he had heard as he had been around Christ, where John the Baptist had uh, spoken these words. And it's, this comes from John 1, 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those who believed that lawlessness was not sin would correspondingly not believe that they need a Savior. But John comes back and says, no, we need a Savior who takes away the sins of the world. For a believer then to practice lawlessness and sin is to deny ultimately or even mock the reason that Jesus came and died on the cross. So I want to give you a little saying. I might even ask you to repeat it with me so you have it. And it's not original with me. I think I, I heard it from Alistair Begg. I was trying to remember here the other day. But here's how it goes. Okay, you ready? You might even jot this down. Okay, Believers have been saved from the penalty of sin. Believers have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? Believers are being saved from the power of sin. And believers will be saved from sin's presence. You got that? Okay. Believers have been saved from the penalty of sin. They are being saved from the power of sin. And they will be saved from the presence of sin. That's great stuff, isn't it? I trust if you walk away with any one thing today, you'll remember this, that Jesus Christ has done what we've needed because of the sin problems that we have. So, 
Let's, uh, let's recite it. We, you ready? Believers have been saved from what? The penalty of sin. Okay. Believers are being saved from what? Power of sin. Believers will be saved from sin's presence. Okay? That's great stuff, isn't it? That Jesus Christ would come to earth to do that for us. It's just overwhelming. Just overwhelming. I thought it was well captured in the songs that we sung this morning. How wonderful, how spectacular is this love that God has for us. So then there's this logical conclusion that is written in these first words. Sin is lawlessness. Law is the sin. And since Jesus came to take away sin and is the only one qualified to do so, there is no sin in him. Then one who abides in him no longer keeps sinning. No longer keeps sinning. The key word there is abide. John affirms that no one who abides in Christ, meaning no one who is genuinely a Christian, keeps on sinning. Now, some of you are going to say, yeah, but I do. I did on the way to worship this morning. Not only by the speed I drove, but the word I spoke to my wife. I know how that goes. Well, remember, the word abide here has this idea of lifestyle. The believer does not have a lifestyle of sin. In other words, he or she is not absolutely overwhelmed by the power of sin such that at every opportunity that sin comes along, they have to do it. That's the great thing about being a believer in Jesus Christ. There is this long progression that God is working through in a person's life where one by one he is taken out by the power that he provides through the Holy Spirit. Remember, that middle one, we are being saved from the power of sin. As we respond, as we yield to the work of the Holy Spirit, Sin becomes less and less a part of our lives. Unless, of course, we fail the test and are yet to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So then sin is not the rule of life, but an occasional event that takes place. And as you remember from the first chapter in 1 John, if we sin, we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. It's not a part of our lives if we have been freed for it. So abide is really an interesting word. We don't use it very often, do we? That's not something that comes up in our everyday communication. But we know what abide means. Let me give you an illustration. If you have a driver's license from the state of Washington and the state of Idaho, you abide by the traffic laws of that particular state. In fact, that's the presumption for you to have the privilege of driving is that you will abide by those laws, those rules that govern your driving. Now, if you choose not to abide by the laws uh, that govern the use of vehicles on state roads, there's an officer of the law who might catch you and be so impressed by your actions that he'll want your signature, or she'll want your signature. <laughs> and if the state collects enough of your signatures, they'll say, nope, you no longer get the privilege of driving on our roads. So we all abide at some point in time, don't we? We abide by, actually, if you're driving, and a person like me, I need to hear this from time to time, not only do, must we abide by the laws of the road, we must abide by the laws of gravity when we're driving our car, too, because that's always a, a good thing there. Right? If a person's lifestyle is one such that he keeps on sinning, he is not abiding by that which he has received, and maybe never received, and that's really the point here. He has not seen or has not known Christ. Take a look there at verse 6. They have not known Jesus Christ. So this description of a person who abides in sin or doesn't abide in sin is on the basis of abiding. If they don't know or haven't seen Jesus Christ, they cannot abide in the freedom of the power of sin over their lives. 
they do know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Christ provides that freedom so that they no longer need to abide in a sinful lifestyle. So remember that again. Believers have been saved from sin's penalty. Believers are being saved from sin's power. and They will be saved from sin's presence. It's our lifestyle. It's our lifestyle to abide in the presence of the power of Jesus. Excuse me, abide in the power of Jesus' freedom from sin. Then we might take a look at these first four verses and say, well, duh, that's obvious. But it's really not. This is a constant battle. Remember, our adversary loves to goof us up in our thinking. My mother had a great term for it. She called it stinking thinking. Okay? We are often victims of a stinking thinking that comes into our lives. And the more we pursue Christ, the more the temptations are to begin to think in ways that are not, con- that are not consistent with the Scriptures. So that's why we have this verse of 7, which is a warning. Take a look at verse 7. The passion and affection of John comes through here because he really does care that these people do not go down a wrong road. Whether it's false teaching that comes from people who are just self-interested or false teaching that it comes through an instrument of Satan, this is a warning that we need. That, and John really moves from lecturer in this situation to the lover of their souls. In a blink of an eye, he says to them, little children... And it reflects the immense love that he has from them, that they do not go down that road where they begin to think, oh, well, I can do whatever I want because now I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Or to be overwhelmed by the guilt that they have from their sins such that they become immobilized in their walk with Jesus Christ. Neither are right. But the commentator Westcott says, the tenderness of the address is called out by the peril of the situation. In other words, we need to constantly be on guard doctrinally, and even in our own hearts, because it's so easy to be taken down a wrong road. That's why I think theology is so important, and I'm going to just wander off the trail here for just a moment. Let's use those words, let no one deceive you. Take a look at that. It's really important, dear friends, that we are theologically sharp and accurate. Might I suggest to you that theology is powerful, it's preeminent, and ultimately... It's, it's practical. Everybody, nobody know this? Everybody survives their death. Did you know that? Everybody, everybody survives their death. Well, once they die, there's going to be a test on theology, isn't there? Okay. And either you're going to be really good at theology, and that'll open up the gates of heaven, or the other side is really, really stark. Sometimes we throw the term hell around as if it's just a flippant word, but we grasp the reality of hell. The need to be a good theologian becomes very important. And that's why John writes with intensity here. We cannot be deceived. False teachers, tools of the devil, would love to see people led away from the truth. They want to see a gospel that's not quite the full gospel preached, or not quite the full gospel believed, because people are easily deceived. And if they're not, if they're not fully assured of where they stand with Jesus Christ, it becomes more and more difficult for them to abide in that relationship with, they have with Christ. So take a look. You'll see the heretics would reject this kind of thinking, but John puts it forth. He says, these heretics indulge in perverse reasoning that somehow somebody can be re- 
righteous without necessarily practicing righteousness. That The scripture doesn't allow that. Yes, we have a righteousness imputed to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, but with that grace that we receive that made us righteous, that grace brings into it a power that allows us to begin to live the kind of righteous life we have. That's what the scriptures proclaim. You can't just say, you know, I got my fire insurance now. I'm not going to hell. I'm good. And I'll just go ahead and live like I was going to hell. That doesn't work, people. Scriptures don't allow for us to have that kind of thinking. Those who have received righteousness are going to ultimately live as those who are righteous. I mentioned back just a few moments ago that there are uh, two main parts to this particular passage. So we're going to move from the first part to the second part. And again, you're going to see some parallels there. But you also want to see some differences there. They may appear to be minor, but really in this whole matter where John is trying to speak to these people and saying, we've got to get this right. He is covering all of the bases. So he says one thing, and you know how you got to do that with your kids from time to time? Okay, you, you can't go do that. Okay, what about this? Okay, you can't go do that, and you got to do this. And sometimes you have to do it with your spouse, sometimes too. you got to cover all the bases there. I'm not actually talking to the husbands when I say that. that. That's why your wife gives you a longer explanation, because you're looking for the out, or you're quite dense and you don't get it there. But really, that's what John is doing in verses 8 to 10 here. He's saying, I'm going to cover all these bases, because the heretic and our adversary, they're really sneaky try and slip something in that is not quite the truth. So to those wingnut false teachers and to our adversary who would love to give us just a little twist, that's what happened in the garden, isn't it? Just a little twist. We take a look at verses 8 to 10. And so we can determine if one is a believer and that an authentic believer is one who is born of God who does not practice sin. Born of God who does not practice sin. Let me show you one of the differences between verses 4 to 6 and verses 8 to 10. Look at verse 4 and find that word, everyone, and then look at verse 8 and find the word, whoever. In case one of these false teachers or a follower of these false teachers had the notion that they weren't sinners because, well, they were not like everyone else, John puts these knuckleheads on notice with this introductory words in this next section, whoever. In other words, each and every one this is the case. There's no special exceptions here. Okay? There's no special exceptions. This applies. This is a universal spiritual truth that is being made here. So verses 4 to 6 point, make the point that the nature of sin is lawlessness. Verses 8 to 10 makes the point that the origin of sin is the devil and the origin of habitual sin is Satan himself. Jesus made a similar point about false teaching from from the religious rulers of the day when he was on earth. He says, you are a father, for John chapter 8, verse 44. He says to these false teachers, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Wow, that's Jesus Christ speaking to these false teachers. It doesn't catch your attention, man. You are, you are dull of heart. And then he talks about who the devil is, and he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, apply that back to these false teachers. You're a liar! 
You, you, you get all kinds of applause. People think you're wonderful, but you're a liar. You who are teaching that which is of the devil, you're a liar. It is not true, and you're le leading people down a path towards falsehood. Falsehood doesn't get you into heaven. It's really powerful stuff. Now look back at verse 8. John states why Jesus appeared with respect to the devil, so that he might destroy the devil's efforts to create a sinful world. And they have everybody wrapped in that world. All the works of the devil, including, and this is a long list, so I'm just going to throw it out there, and if you want to add in later, you can. But think of these things. These are all from the devil. Atheism, ignorance, unbelief, indifference, fear, idolatry, blasphemy, pride, deceiving, hypocrisy, hate. How much further should the list go? A long way, doesn't it? It's not the world that God wanted for us. But our adversary wants to make sure it's prevalent throughout the world. The great news is that one day, by the power of the Son of God, it will all be wiped out, right? We will be saved from what? Sins. We are being saved from sin's power. We will be saved from sin's presence. Isn't that great? Aren't those just those wonderful moments in life where you know that no sin's going on, and those are the things that you just say, oh, I'm at ease, I'm at rest, because sin is not creating Think about the sin that has crept into our lives. Everybody has family issues, don't they? Think about the stress that creates. So here's the logic in this particular passage. Satan is the origin of sin, including mankind being a sinner by both nature and by choice. But Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, and no one born of God makes sin a lifestyle because the seed of God abides in him. There's assurance there, isn't there? Remember, that's what this is about, to bring assurance. The believer abides in Christ, and God's seed abides in the believer, so no one born of God practices sin. Now, any of us who have been a believer for any length of time can list any number of sins we've committed. So how do we understand that? Well, the key to understanding is this, is the way John uses the verb in the phrase, he has been born. It indicates a complete and final nature of the new birth. The reason an authentic believer does not practice sin, that is, have a sinful life over which there is no power, is because receiving the new birth from God himself and by the virtue of the new birth, the divine nature is at work in us. And so really, in the end, this is a question, if I might be this crass and kind of street lingo, but in the end, the question is, who's your daddy? Okay. Is it the father of lies? Or is it the God of heaven who has implanted the seed in us? What does that look like? Well, that's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You know this. We know that uh, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God himself comes to indwell within us in his spirit that is holy, right? What kind of spirit is it? Pretty good spirit. So-so spirit? What's the new, the commercials that are out there? It's okay spirit? No. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within us. And if the Holy Spirit dwells within us, its very purpose and intent is to continue a work of transformation within us that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ in character and conduct and conviction. That's the great stuff. Authentic Christians ultimately do not want to sin. 
How many of you really enjoy sin? How many of you walk out the door today and say, ah, I don't know what that nut so was saying there, but I'm going to go sin. No. In the end, you realize sin has consequences. And, and we wish that we had more power over them, but we don't have to rely on ourselves. We can continue to rely on the Holy Spirit. And when we yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in these matters of faith and obedience and love, then we see God begin to change us. And one day those things that, that even when used to be such a powerful temptation, those temptations begin to wash away. And we, we be, I, I don't need to go there. I don't need to look at that. I don't need to say that anymore because, of course, Jesus Christ has been at work in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of advertising these days, isn't there, about uh, DNA tests? What's that one? Uh, Ancestry.com or something like that. It was pretty funny commercials. I, I think that that's helpful. I've had the chance to go back to where the Butler Castle is in Kilkenny, Ireland. It's a pretty powerful event. But, you know, nothing is more important than understanding this. Who is your spiritual father? Who is your spiritual father? What's your spiritual DNA? That's the most important question. And John's final point in verse 10 focuses on this much more important spiritual identity. Every person who is a member of a family is going to be a member of one of two families, either God's family or Satan's family. The Bible just lays it out. It's a binary world in terms of the scriptures, isn't it? It's either this or it's this. We love to think it's gray in the middle. No, it's not that way. Read through chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. It becomes very binary right there. The distinguishing mark of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven or members of God's family, however we want to understand that term, is this. The practice of either righteousness or sin. We're practicers of righteousness. If we abide in Jesus Christ, we will continue to practice righteousness in a greater and greater degree as life goes on. Or, as the nature of sin is, our sinful lives will become more and more sinful as life goes on. Depends on our spiritual DNA. Are we a child of the Father, or is Satan our father? One who does not practice righteousness is not of God. It's very clear. Meaning God is not the spiritual father. The fail-proof test of fraternity is, well, ultimately one's lifestyle, and this gets into that next question. Do you love the brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you love the brothers and sisters in the faith? False teachers usually had a disdain for those who didn't see themselves as their equals, and actually probably those who were their equals were looked at with some uh, rejection of, towards that person, some disdain. But this really lays the ground level at the foot of the cross, doesn't it? That person that sometimes seems to be a rival or an enemy, if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they're a member of the same family. Do you love your family members? This is one of the key marks of Jesus Christ. When I was struggling a couple of weeks ago with just you know, the weight of life, I came across a statement by J.I. Packer. He says, the one key thing that you cannot take away and needs to be the starting point of theology is this, that God has loved you. Boy, I needed to hear those words. And if God has loved us to the great degree by which God has loved us in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, then that love can be easily shared with others who are a member of God's forever family. 
And that's the mark. That's the assurance that John wants us to have as we take a look at these words. Do you love the person near you? If you don't love the person near you in this room, and I'm just going to take this fellowship as a, a place of mark. As we love, we have that assurance. We have that confidence that we are those upon whom God has shed his love. And we can be certain that we are not those who are being disposed of here, spoken of here that are of Satan, but we are of God. I know love has varying degrees, and, and we grow in that love for other believers. And it's more difficult when you're in high school or you're in college and you're trying to find your way in life. But as we grow in our love for one another, it becomes a confirmation that we are, in fact, part of God's family. So let me return to that question that I was asked in my adolescence here as we begin to wrap up with these words. If you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, let me suggest the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Not based on religious behaviors, but on these following proofs. First, the birth that you have received, that new birth that is spoken about in John chapter 3, that's the proof because it brings new life. There is new life at work within you. If you've known that, if you see that, you have that new, that divine nature at work within you, that's proof right there that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and can be convicted of being a believer in Jesus Christ. Second, the power that you receive allows us to begin to live lives free of sin. There's another evidence that we are believers in Jesus Christ. And third, the love possessed for others in God's family convicts us that we are, in fact, believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're so very grateful for your word. We're so very grateful for even the words that are sometimes difficult for us to understand. But uh, hopefully, Father, as we continue to uh, consider those words, even meditate on those words, you'll give us a deeper and deeper understanding so that it will transform our lives. Thank you for this time we've had to take a look at these words. Uh, may your, the work of your spirit uh, continue throughout not only this day, but in the week ahead, so that uh, we who are the church here would continue to bring glory and honor to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.